Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a review. I check all of them, and I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten from everybody thus far, and I hope to hear from some more of you down the road. Support for Cohen's Corner is brought to you by Manscaped, the industry leader in men's below-the-belt grooming. Fellas, are you prepared to unveil your summer bod? Manscaped is here to ensure your post-quarantine body is ready for the wild. Don't be the guy at the beach with a bear rug on your chest, and hey, if you happen to pack on a few extra pounds during quarantine, that's okay. Just make sure the rest of your body is smooth and hairless. Look guys, I was at my friend's beach house over the weekend for the 4th of July, and I saw up close and personal what happens if you don't have any Manscaped products in your medicine cabinet. What happens is you're going to get ready to go in the water, you're going to take off your shirt, and you're going to think you're going to impress that girl at the house next door. The problem is she's going to get one look at a bushy mane on your chest or unkempt shoulders and back hair, and she's going to turn around and go the other way. And that's why Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game. They have forever changed the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with the essential Lawnmower 3.0. It's a waterproof cordless body trimmer, and there's a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This is the best trimmer on the market for those of you in need of a chest shave, and this third generation trimmer features skin safe technology to reduce those painful manscaping accidents. You can also adjust the settings to get a length you like, and you can stay on top of it with almost no effort at all. Hey, you can even trim an arrow pointing to the promised land if you're feeling bold enough. Be sure to use their crop cleanser to keep your hair and skin healthy. It's an all-in-one formula, so it's as good for healthy chest hair as it is for your skin. Inside the perfect package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer because we know how painful chafing can be when you're wearing a bathing suit all day long. You'll also find the Crop Reviver. It's a toner designed to give you a little bit of extra pep in your step. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. For a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N, at manscaped.com. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the promo code COHEN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off your entire order plus free shipping at manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. Trim your chesticles with the besticles. Today's guest is former Carolina Panthers safety Mike Minter, who is now the head coach at FCS Campbell University in North Carolina. Mike was a second-round pick by the Panthers in 1997 after a tremendous career at the University of Nebraska, where he played for the legendary Tom Osborne and won two national titles. He earned a starting spot for the Panthers six games into his rookie career and remained a starting safety for the entirety of his stay in Charlotte up until he retired prior to the 2007 season. At one point in time, from 1999 to 2006, he started and played 126 out of 128 possible games. When he finally retired due to chronic knee pain prior to that 2007 season, he was the franchise leader in tackles, starts, 
and consecutive starts with 94, a true Iron Man in the back end of that Panthers defense. He was there for some tremendous Carolina Panthers teams, including the 2003 squad that went all the way to the Super Bowl and lost on a last-second field goal by Adam Vinatieri of the New England Patriots. He was part of the Carolina Panthers team that went to the NFC title game two years later and lost to a very, very good Seattle Seahawks team. And he played with guys like Julius Peppers, Thomas Davis, Steve Smith, Jake DeLome. The list goes on and on. There were some tremendous players in that Carolina Panthers era. After he retired, he dipped his toe into politics very briefly, considering a run for the U.S. House of Representatives in 2010 as a Republican candidate in the 8th Congressional District in North Carolina. Ultimately, he decided not to run, but he's a very well-rounded individual who remains connected to the community and prides himself on understanding people and the needs of the Charlotte and North Carolina area. He then transitioned into coaching, first at the high school ranks where he won a couple of state titles, and then he moved into college, first as an assistant head coach at Johnson C. Smith College, then as the special teams coordinator at Liberty University, and now, as I mentioned, head coach at Campbell University ever since 2013. He's put together three straight winning seasons at Campbell and instituted the school's first ever pro day in 2016 that drew 19 scouts from around the league. Mike is a fascinating individual who saw a lot of things during his NFL career and somebody who has a tremendous pulse on everything going on in the country and in his local community. Very well-spoken, very intelligent individual, and I think you guys will enjoy this conversation because I certainly had a great time myself. So without further ado, here is a conversation with former Carolina Panthers safety Mike Minter. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I know that this is a time when everybody's spending spending the, the holiday weekend with their families. We're recording this on Friday morning, right before the weekend starts. And so, first of all, I want to say, uh, you know, thanks for for carving out a little bit of time. And, and second, I got to ask you, you know, with with you running a program now and and being at the helm, just how crazy and how hectic has everything been the last couple of months trying to lead a group of young men with with everything going on right now in in this country and in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, it was challenging, but at the same time, uh, you know, fun because you get a chance to challenge yourself in a different way, and you know, so you're basically leading people from a distance. You know, most of the time you're leading these guys, you're right in front of them. They get to feel your energy in the room, and you get to feel their energy in the room, and it was more of a person to person physical type situation. Um, now, um, once the pandemic hit and everybody has to go home, now you have to lead people virtually. <laughs> and so um, you get very, very good at Zoom calls. And so you start to figure out when a kid is paying attention, when a kid is not paying attention, how long does a Zoom call and a Zoom meeting needs to be <laughs> in order to, you know, captivate the, uh, keep the audience captivated. And so, um, so you learn all these deals, and, and, and it's new. And and so what you have to do, what I what I figured out through the whole deal, um, Michael, is is that, you know, what you have to do is, is break it up. You can't, I can't do the big team meeting and give my, you know, direction from from being a head coach and, and, and um, you know, kind of give it to everybody at once. Now you as a head coach have to make sure that you are spending a lot of time with your assistant coaches. So then they can go give the message to their group 
And then you also have to spend time with your leadership group. Right. So they can then disseminate some of that to the players, right? So, you know, I know that's a long answer um, to your uh, question, but, you know, that that's really, you know, what you live in and what you have lived over the last, you know, two or three months. You know, you were always regarded as, as being a very intelligent guy, not only from an X's and O's standpoint, but, you know, dating back to Nebraska, majoring in engineering. You know, with, with everything that's happening related to COVID right now, if you were in the player's shoes, be that one of your players at Campbell, or maybe thinking if you're still on the Panthers getting ready for training camp in what would normally be, you know, maybe about a month from now, maybe a little less, how would you feel about, you know, potentially coming back to football with, with everything that's going on and, and the risk factors that are inherently involved with, with close contact? Well, I think the first thing that anybody has to do is educate themselves about the matter at hand, right? And so um, if it was me and I was a player, I would get as much information as I could around what is COVID, right? Not Not listening to the news or, you know, any type of Twitter stuff or social media. Um, let let me dive into as much as I can so then I can equip myself. Um, and if you do that, then the fears go away. So the more information you have, the you know, the, the more confident you are about the situation. You do the same thing as a player in football, right? So you, you want to learn how to eat right. <laughs> you want to learn how to work out right. What is the new techniques? so on and so forth. And so you do this already. And this is just another, um, I would say, an obstacle or another enemy that you have to learn. And, and so you, you have to, you know, spend time doing that. Because if you don't, then, of course, if you don't understand, fear is going to jump in. And, um, and so that's what I would do. I would educate myself um, with that. Now, with that being said, I also would understand if I'm a college kid, um, that let's say if I'm a college kid and I live in a situation that's not very good. Right. Okay. Where, where I'm not going to get tested. I'm not going to be, you know, subjected to all the different information that's out there. And so now I'm in the wild, wild west. Okay. I, I might get it. I might not get it. I would never know until maybe I get so sick that now my mom can take me to the hospital or, to the clinic to deal with the situation. Right. Well, that could be too late, right? So so a lot of people don't talk about that part. They act like everybody who go home have a great atmosphere, right? Right. And, and, and so protected because home equal protection. But in, in a lot of these cases, that, that's just not true. So some of these kids, right, living on their own, really. Yeah. So it's no, it's no home. It's no mom or dad. It's just, I'm just surviving and so all the skills i've learned up to this point i gotta now navigate that through what we call in some you know um virus that we can't even see and we don't like the heads of the united states of america didn't understand right, right. so right. so how am i supposed to do that um so i look at that and i say man look the best protection i have is being on campus right so i want to go back right and but i can't because you know, the overarching thing is everybody has the same situation, and they don't. You know, and so, you know. It's funny you mentioned the idea that home isn't necessarily safe. Yesterday I was listening to 
a podcast put out by the New York Times about the situation in Brazil, which has quickly become one of the most inundated countries in the world. And what they were explaining is that in Brazil, the structure of apartment complexes and housing is so close together. And there's a lot of situations where there's multiple families in one house, multiple generations of a family in one house. And they were explaining that, you know, even though these people are staying at home, they're still at, at high risk. And, and that sort of relates right. to what you were saying, too, because, you know, now granted, dorm life is not necessarily that spread out. But if guys have off-campus apartments and things like that, you know, it does give you a little bit more of an opportunity to maybe have that social distance element if you grew up in a in a neighborhood or a building or a, or a house where there were a tremendous amount of people. And so, you know, I, I'm really yeah. curious to see how it plays out. And, and you've been a high school coach as well. And, you know, that was something that yeah. ran through my mind, too, because, you know, my particular high school was, was in a very small town in Connecticut. And we had one locker room for the boys for all sports and one locker room for the girls for all sports. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. you know, how is that going to work when you've got <laughs> maybe 200 uh, athletes? across all fall sports trying to you know change and get ready for practice every day it's it's really fascinating and so I almost think that you know high school sports which which aren't talked about too much because so much of the focus is on college in the NFL but I think they might be the ones that that have to maybe exercise the most restraint just because you know there's a lack of resources in a lot of high schools you know what I mean yes no you, you're right on the money um, I was thinking about that yesterday too I was like man I would not like being a senior right now, an upcoming senior that that was a football player yep. um, in high school, man, that, that is not a good situation because of those things that you just spoke about. And, um, you know, how do you deal with that? Now, if the NFL and the college teams can't deal with it, you know high schools can't deal with it, but you can't come back for your senior year. Exactly. Like in college, if we don't play, maybe they give these guys another chance to you know, get an extra year. Well, in high school, it's, it is what it is. So now imagine a high school um, athlete that, you know, his junior film wasn't that great, but he's ready to go his senior year, right? right. So now all of a sudden, you, a kid like that, you really lose um, throughout the shuffle. Now, your five stars, your guys that, you know, that that's great, of course, they're going to be taken care of. But, you know, we're not dealing with those guys. We're dealing with you know, two stars, three stars, no stars. And, and, and so we have to figure out um, how do we evaluate these kids and give them an opportunity to go to college and get a free education. You know, I want to take you back a little bit in, in your career. When you were, you know, growing up in, in Oklahoma at Lawton High School, you were a tremendous two-way player, running back and safety, uh, led the state's largest class in rushing that year. And then, of course, your NFL career and college career, you end up playing defensive back. So I'm curious, for, for somebody like you that, that had a tremendous profile and was certainly a coveted recruit, what do you remember about the recruiting process back then, before the age of social media, before the age of guys making posters with their top tens and top fours and whatever? I mean, what was what was it like to, to be recruited kind of essentially, you know, over a landline and, and through actual snail mail back then, uh, you know, in the early 90s? Yeah. I think the biggest thing that uh, recruiting was was your neighborhood and your high school coaches, right? So, so they, you know, colleges and universities at that time would spend a lot of t a lot of time with all the people that knew you, so they could constantly talk to you throughout the year or throughout your career and so on and so forth, and and, and so that's really where all the connection came. Now, on the phone calls, 
um, was kind of awkward, right? So, so sure. they call you, and then now you're sitting there. You, you're a young kid. You, you don't know really what to say, and and and, and you know they don't really know what to say, and so um, it was more that. Um, of course, you got chances to go to to games um, with me being in Oklahoma. Um, I got a chance to go to OU OU games and and Oklahoma State games and and um, and so I, I I picked the Oklahoma State versus Nebraska game because I really wanted to see Nebraska. This is my eleventh grade year, right? So um, and then you know come to I already knew where I was going. So from the third grade, I knew I was going to Nebraska. I was watching them in nineteen eighty three. Um, 84 Orange Bowl, and I fell in love with Nebraska. Really? I said, man, I got to go to, yeah. I said, I got to go to this school. This is my school. You know, it so happened that uh, my Little League team when I was in the third grade was red and white too, right? So okay. it just kind of it just kind of fit, and, and, and I really love, you know, Mike Rozier and how he was running. So this is where number 30 comes from, okay? So in the third grade, I picked number 30 because of Mike Rozier and, and um, that, you know, 83 explosive offense. And, man, I just – I was like, I'm going to Nebraska. So, from that point on, from the third grade, nobody else mattered. It didn't matter who was coming to talk to me. It didn't matter <laughs> what they said. I was going to Nebraska. So, I committed to Nebraska uh, without even visiting Nebraska. Gotcha. Right? So, yeah, so Coach Osborne came down, uh, went to a basketball game, um, came to my house, and um, I committed that night. Two weeks later, I visited Nebraska. So, so I was a Cornhusker man for a long time before Coach Osborne called. Did you have any interest in trying to play either both ways or, or stick with running back at all? Or did you always know in your heart you were going to be a DB at a higher level? No, no. I, I, you know, I always wanted to be a running back, of course. And, and um, I remember when Coach came and he asked me, he said, um, so we're going to recruit you as an athlete you know what what are you leaning towards right and and i didn't answer it that night but i thought about it and i answered it when i came on my visit and um so of course me i'm 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 thinking about 10 years down the road and and blah 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 and i'm like well <laughs> shoot man i'm looking at the you know at the roster and i'm saying okay they got a they got a young freshman he he all big eight i'm talking about running back right sure and um they got an older guy that's, um, you know, that's getting drafted. And so I'm like, man, I'll never play at running back. <laughs> man, that's not, that's not what I want to do. And then, and then I started looking at the NFL where running backs are probably about three to five years. Yep. If you really, really good, like the Barry Sanders of the world and the Emmitt Smiths of the world and the Walter Paytons of the world, you, you, you might get up to 10. Right. And I was like, well, that's not, that's not good percentages. So I don't want that. And, and I started looking at defensive backs, and they play a long time. I said, well, I'm going to be a DB. And so that's how I decided to be a DB over a running back. I think it's easy to to kind of forget just how good some of those Nebraska teams were in the 80s yeah. and 90s because, you know, the the program hasn't been quite at the, at the top national level that it was back then, um, you know, over the last decade or two. So I'm curious, for a guy who always knew he wanted to go there, and then over the course of your, you know, four plus one redshirt year in school, five years, the program wins two national titles. Um, how would you describe what it was like to, to get there? Did it match everything you envisioned since you were a third grade year, a uh, third grade student, the buzz around the program, the prestige, the fan base? Was it exactly what you thought it was going to be? 
it was even more, you know, it was even more. Coach Osborne, he, he was so ahead of his time. Everything that everybody is crazed over today, right? Nutrition, weight room, um, psychology, uh, mental health, all that stuff that everybody's talking about right now. We was doing that in the 90s. Wow. Okay, so Osborne was already, uh, you know, ahead of his time with that. So, you know, the, the academic support, all the different things that we're doing there, it, it, I mean, we had that. And, and so, I mean, we were the first one. I remember um, we brought in a nutrition um, guy, um, Dave Ellis, now, the number one guy in the world right now. Um, and he, he started with us. He started with our team. <laughs> and he was a young guy coming in, didn't, didn't really have a clue. And he built a whole nutrition program uh, for us to start winning these championships. So it was a lot of things that went into it. Um, of course, the weight room and the strength and conditioning was always there, um, you know, since since the early 70s. And, and so, you know, these guys just knew how to do things. So when I got there, it, it was just amazing to me of how the whole person was dealt with. And it wasn't just a football thing. It was everything. And, and I grew from that, you know, even from a spiritual standpoint, to have a head coach that was, you know, um, very strong in his faith. Uh, really led me to my faith because of him and um, watching him. So, again, every phase of a human being that's important, that helps that person grow, Coach Osborne had it in his program. So it's no accident that um, you look at us and, and you see us going three championships through, you know, throughout the years that I was there and winning two of the three. And, um, and then, you know, a year later after I leave, they win another one. Um, with the same type of guys. Um, I really look at the 92 class that came in. I mean, Tommy Frazier and myself and uh, Tyrone Williams and, and Baron Miles and Toby Wright. And, man, you just you just continue to go down the line. And that 92 class that came in was just an unbelievable class. And everybody had the same type of mindset that we're going to change this. We're not just going to win the Big A and get to the big dance and lose, we're going to win championships, national championships. And everybody had that mindset, and we believed it. And, uh, you know, we were able to accomplish those things throughout my career at Nebraska. It's it's pleasing to me to hear that that he dedicated at least a portion of the time Tom Osborne did to to mental health because in my years covering the Packers when I was in Wisconsin, you know I, I think one of the things that I I kind of took away from being in the locker room five days a week as a reporter was that you know some of these guys I think the the perception of them is that they're they're such tremendous athletes and they're such big um, personalities and stars that that they can't show any weakness. That it would be it would be you know sacrilegious for them to display any sort of, of flaw in their personality or, or anything like that because they have to be as tough and as perfect as they can. And 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 I think that there's a lot of pressure that comes with that because the bottom line is whether you're um, you know Cam Newton winning an MVP in Carolina or a guy who never you know gets off the practice squad, you're still people that deal with things in real life. And the mental health part of that is significant. And for people who have listened to my podcast or followed my coverage of the Packers, you know that I've been open about, you know, dealing with depression myself and how important it's been for me to talk to people. And so I'm curious, having that base in your career as such a young player, 
Did you find yourself being more cognizant of your own mental health when you were in the pros and also now for your own players now that you're running a program? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, you you hit it right on the you know nail on the head with that. It, it's so amazing that um, we do forget about that because we just think about the mental piece as you know what we would call soft skills, right? So kind of secondary, but it's really what drives everything else. And uh, and so with Coach Osborne teaching us that and having that development within his program for the five years that, um, that I was there. Now, when I get to the pros, I, all I do is, is look for the same pieces in the National Football League. And, you know, luckily um, there at the Carolina Panthers, uh, we had a team chaplain. And so, you know, I, I got with him and, and really developed a strong relationship with him. Um, and then also got my own sports psychologist outside of um, him. And, and oh, so wow. I, I knew the importance of keeping your mind right, keeping your spirit right. And because it is a lot of pressure. It's a, it's a lot of things that, that, that come, come at you. But if you're able to keep balance, keep focus, understand, you know, the, the emotional roller coaster and how to what I call mental toughness, right, is, is, is being – not too high, not too low. Um, if something great happens, get back to center. Something bad happens, get back to center. And um, and so that's really what you do to develop that mental toughness is how fast can you get back to center. And um, so, yeah, in the National Football League, I was all about that. So when I started coaching, of course, I brought that element to my high school and now I bring that element to Campbell University um, because I know how – so important it is and so we do a Campbell University FCS program it's not we have our own sports psychologist just for football that I brought in just for football okay and uh, and it's not a campus counselor right where every right. person can go to and you know that person's getting bombarded with all kind of stuff of course and you just don't have enough people to deal with 5,000 students that's on your campus and so um, you know, we, we, we built it where we have our own because that's what I'm used to, right? That's what Coach Osborne did. And, and um, it helps so much because these kids are dealing with so much. Now, you think about what's going on in the world today, you know, with, with the racial um, stuff that's going on, man. I mean, these kids are dealing with this. No doubt. Right? And they don't know how to deal with it because, you know, their whole life it's been okay. <laughs> right? Like it's been, it's been cool. It, it, it hasn't been this in your face. And now you seeing things that you, you like, Whoa, people really feel that way. People really think that way. And, and so now you have to deal with that. So how do you deal with that? Uh, most kids don't have someone that they can go to and talk about their feelings. Why? To your point earlier, Michael, they think they got to be he man. They right. got to be a superhero. I cannot be weak, and and you dealing with all this, and and um, eventually it got to come out somewhere, right? So so we have our sports psychologist, man, that's dealing with these kids on that level with where they at, with what's going on today. So I want to ask you about a moment during your time at Nebraska that I imagine would have been 
challenging and provided a test for for what you were talking about in terms of how quickly you can get back to center when something really positive happens or something really negative. And so um, in your, I think it would have been your your junior year or redshirt sophomore, however you labeled it, when in 94, you tear your ACL a couple games into that season and the team goes on to to win a national championship, if I'm correct. And so I imagine for for a young man who wanted nothing more than I'm sure to win a national championship, that that probably left you with some conflicting emotions. What what was that period like being on the sideline and watching, you know, your teammates get to the ultimate prize Mm -hmm. when you probably would have given your other good knee to get out there and play if you could? Oh, man, Uh, it it was such a challenging time, but also uh, where I grew the most. And that's really where you grow, man. You grow when you go down in the, in the, in the belly of the beast, right? And, and then come out of there a different person because you have to navigate yourself um, through there to, to come out um, as a different person. And, and that's what happened during that time. I, I remember when it, when it happened, and um, I remember us flying back because we was at Texas Tech. So we was in Lubbock, Texas. And so we flying back. And I remember Coach Osborne um, making me sit right next to him up front in the plane. Just think about just that move to put me up front in the plane with him and to have me there the whole time so he can talk to me. Right. I mean, who does that, right? So most of the time – the kid will probably go back in the back with the other players. All right. Um, of course, you'll probably have a different seat because you can't bend your knee. But who does that? And and I remember him doing that. Man, that went a long way. And and I and he said to me, he said, "You're gonna be okay. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. It'll be tough, but I promise you, you'll make it through." And and that is what I heard every single day. Okay. <laughs> and um and and so what I did was instead of you know crying about the knee, what I did is I, I poured myself into my teammates and I poured myself into the guy who was taking my spot um, as a starting safety, right? So, you know, how, how can I help um, him get better to help us win? And, and and so I think in life, when things go on, instead of going internal and thinking about what happened and thinking about you, if you pour yourself into other people, trust me, the healing will come. And that's what happened. So I became the best cheerleader in the world. <laughs> I said, I'm going to be the number one cheerleader that, that um, ever was stepped on this earth. And, and so I poured all the energy in that. And of course, I poured my energy into getting ready and getting prepared and, and rehabbing and all that stuff. But um, it, it, was, it was a great moment because we won a championship. But as soon as we lifted that trophy up and as soon as we came back from Miami and we did our uh, you know, celebration in the whole nine, I grabbed the whole football team that was coming back that next day. And I said, look, we are going back to the championship because I did not get to play in that game. <laughs> and I'm going to be on every single one of y'all every single day. And don't think for one moment you're going to be able to rest on the fact that we won a national championship. And so, man, i tell you right now, I was on them guys every day to work hard. We got to go harder. We got to go harder. And, um, you know, the 95 team, I believe, of course I'm a little biased, but I still believe that it's the greatest football team in college football um, because our defense was so great and our offense, you couldn't stop. 
And um, a lot of people talk about, oh, man, what about that, you know, that USC team or, um, you know, what about that Miami team with Air Reed and all them guys? Man, they, they've got to deal with the triple option. That's not easy. Right. <laughs> so it doesn't matter how great you are. I mean, we played against some great dudes. I mean, you talk about Warren Sapp and, and uh, you know, uh, oh, man, I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank on the, on the linebacker, one of the greatest linebackers of all time that played for Baltimore. Oh, Ray I mean, Lewis. Yeah, he was there too. Ray Lewis, yeah, he was there too. And, and uh, we, we smoked them. So, um, you know, that's, that's a deal where I, I look at the 95 team and I said that we were so focused and so hungry to do even more of it that, um, you know, they, they, we turned out to be one of the greatest teams to ever play. You know, that, that 95 season ends, of course, with a, a second national title in two years. And that title game against Florida, which was the Fiesta Bowl that year, I was going back and looking at, at some of the rosters and, you know, looking at Florida's roster on offense. So the guys that you and, and your teammates had to defend, they had Danny Werfel at quarterback, Fred Taylor, who became an unbelievable player in the NFL at running back, Redell Anthony, first-round pick at wide receiver, and Jacquez Green, who I also believe was a first-round pick at wide receiver. And then I looked at your roster at Nebraska. You guys had nine players that were named All-American or at least honorable mention All-American, which is a tremendous amount for for one program. And, you know, from Tommy Frazier to Amon Green, Lawrence Phillips, Mike Rucker, your close friend, one of your best friends. And so, you know, I mean, you guys were loaded. And so I got to ask, going into that national title game against that Florida team, um, what were you thinking? And, and, and did you, I mean, I don't know if you were the kind of guy that got nervous all the time before games or if you were always calm and cool, but what were you thinking finally getting your chance to be in that national title after you had missed it the year before? Um, listen, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not the type of guy to get nervous about things. Okay. I'm the type of guy that, that, that want to jump in it and enjoy the moment. Right, because I believe that I should always be there. So I never look at it and say, man, I'm lucky to be here. I'm like, no, this is how it's supposed to be. You know, from from elementary, you know, I've been winning championships at every level that I've ever been at. And um, and so it, it was just what it was supposed to be. So when the moment came, man, I'm ready. You know, I, this is what I've been, you know, thinking about and, and, and know this is where I'm supposed to be. So um and we knew as a football team these guys have never seen what we about to do to you okay that's that's the confidence that we always had is that we're going to be physical and you are not going to play with us for four quarters eventually you're going to run out of gas eventually you're going to you know quit wanting to get hit by us and the first kickoff okay jockey green green gets the kickoff return right he's a freshman at the time and so he gets the kickoff return. He takes off, and we hit him and, and, and tore his hip up. Right? He's done for the rest of the game. I mean, <laughs> but that hit set the tone that this is the type of game that we're going to be in tonight, Florida. You're not going to be running around, and nobody's going to be touching you all night. Right? And I remember before the game, though, they were talking all kind of trash. Oh, man, we, you know, Florida kids, we were real excited and talking trash, and we didn't say nothing. We just looked at them, all right? So so after, you know, this happens and we get older, I talked to some of these guys that played on their team, and they was like, 
man, when you guys looked at us when we was talking all our trash coming out of the locker room and y'all just stared at us, we <laughs> said, man, what did we just get ourselves into? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so, yeah, so, man, we was just about our business. and uh, But it was a great moment. And then, you know, because the game got out of control, got out of hand, we was winning. We knew we were going to win with about two, three minutes to go on the clock. And, and so we on the sideline celebrating. And so we got a chance for – you know, two or three minutes to celebrate on the sideline with each other sure. and um, know that we was winning the game, man. That's that's a great feeling. Sometimes the names of the positions are a little bit different from scheme to scheme. So I was wondering what sort of the responsibilities were of the rover position that you played. Was that kind of like the nickel spot that a lot of teams have now, or was it more of like a, a robber safety kind of position? It was a uh, robber safety kind of position. So it's the weak side safety. Gotcha. And um, a lot of the times, man, you know, on the weak side, you don't you don't have that responsibility. You can be in the run, you can get in the flat, you know, to the weak side, and and uh, sometimes you can spin to the middle of the field. But I mean, we was a cover one football team. Okay. Um, in that game, we went for the first time. We put in that whole two weeks or, or three weeks or whenever, however long we had to get ready for this bowl game. We put in what we would call zone blitzes today, right? So sure. um, that was the first time we did it, and and it was match but don't carry. And so we we spent you know the three four weeks just learning that defense, and that was something that we put in, and and I think that's what got them because we was you know blitzing linebackers and dropping defensive ends, and and um, that that really uh, you know threw them for a loop, um, but. You know, a rover is, is that weak side guy, and I and I love that position because I played in the league too. Right, and I mean they just don't account for you. <laughs> so you know, defenses today, um, a lot of these defenses, let's say like Baylor, um, Iowa State, um, those guys is going to that three 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 stack defense, right? And that middle guy that's um, back in the back, he's really playing that rover spot, right? And he's able to feel and do whatever he wants to. And if you got a guy there, he can make a lot of different plays. And so um, that, that's that's what we do with our rope. I was wondering how you felt, you know, after your senior year getting ready for the draft. You end up being a second-round pick by the Panthers, number 56 overall. So I went back to look at some of the other safeties that were taken kind of around you in the draft. And so 33 overall was Rob Kelly. Um, 49 overall was Torian Gray, and then you were next in line in the third guy at 56. So you had a better career than the two guys at safety drafted ahead of you. And then within a couple of picks after you, within four picks after you, is Kim Herring and then Darren Sharper. And so I was just curious, how did you sort of see yourself related to, to some of those other safeties? And, and did you think you had a chance to go in the first round? Or what did you think of your draft stock? Well, yeah. Um, so let, let me say this. I knew all those safeties. Okay. Because we all worked out together coming up through the draft. And, and um, so we, you know, as, as you're going through the combine, you're all together during that time. So we knew each other. Uh, we, you know, we started to, to learn each other, of course, in February. Some, like Tori and Gray, we actually had the same workout guy. And so we started um, understanding and, and learning each other back in, in January when we went to Pittsburgh and, and this is the first time I've ever been to Pittsburgh, and that's where we was training and doing all our stuff. And so so I knew all these guys, man, coming into the deal. So, of course, I'm sure we all, you know, looking at each other and saying who who can be this and who can be that. 
And I think Rob had the, the biggest name at the time sure. with what was going on at Ohio State. And so he, he was kind of getting a lot of PR from that. Um, I thought I was going to be a first-round guy. Uh, I, I really felt like I, I would, you know, should have been the first or the second guy that was that was picked at that time. And and, uh, and so, you know, but I'm sure everybody else thought the same thing, right? right. I mean, you look at a sharper who, you know, was – um, two two safeties after me uh, probably had the best career out of all of us, and uh, you know he was way down there. So you can imagine what he's feeling, right? Right. <laughs> that he should have been the first guy uh, during that time. And and so what 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 I can say is I'm sure we all was competing against each other throughout our you know NFL career, right? So you watching what he's doing. I'm sure they watching what I'm doing. And, we we cheering for one another, but we also competing against. Hey man, I should have been higher than you, and so on <laughs> and so forth. And and so um, um, every time that we played each other, we definitely you know uh, kidded each other around that, right? So um, it, it's real. It, it's always competition, and and um, but you know at the end of the day, man, I, I couldn't be more happier. Um, that I ended up where I ended up. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you walked into a, a really interesting situation because when you get there, the Panthers is an organization. It's it's their third year of existence. And the head coach at the time is Dom Capers, who's coming off a year where they win Coach of the Year, or he wins Coach of the Year, excuse me, in 96 after the team goes, I believe, 12-4, and four, and they reach the NFC title game. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, yeah. what, what was the organization like back then, sort of in its infancy? And, you know, Dom Capers is a guy that I was around for a number of years in Green Bay. I, I was just curious, okay. what did you think? of the pairing between him and then defensive coordinator Vic Fangio another name guys will know yeah yeah and um so so I look at that I, I, I'm thinking okay I, I'm, I'm winning championships at every level well wh- come on Super Bowl is next man he's got <laughs> one game away I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna help these guys we're gonna go to the Super Bowl right this is what I'm thinking so I, I get there and I remember this vividly okay and it was a mini camp. And, and I'm looking like, we're not very good. <laughs> you know, like, we're not very good. How in the world did we go almost to the Super Bowl? I, I, didn't, I didn't like our competitiveness. I, I, you know, I was thinking something totally different, you know, coming from Nebraska to, to, to where I'm at. And, and, um, and then what I didn't know is all the veterans didn't have to come to that camp. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that's, that's what why, I didn't know. That's why the level of play <laughs> <Yeah>. was so low. <laughs> yes. And, and so then the next camp we have, all the veterans are there, Eric Davis, um, you know, DB that's in the back, and, and you know, Sam Mills. and all. So, so you know, all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, Lamar Lakeson. I said, okay, now, now I see why we were there. Okay. And, and um, we were getting ready to go. And I think the thing that kind of threw us off from a defensive standpoint is the fact that Kevin Green was going through a contract dispute during the time. Okay. And so Kevin Green never came um, and played that year. And I thought it hurt us. I thought it threw us off because he was the leader of the defense. He was the heart and soul of the defense. He was he was everything to that defense, the energy that goes with the defense, right? And, um, and we didn't have that. Now, I didn't know it. Because you know I'm I'm sitting there. Let's get ready to play. But you know, knowing what I know about KG, because he came back the next year, knowing what I know about him, I'm like, oh yeah, we'd have had that. 
we would have been fine. Okay. Right. And um and I I think we and we went four and twelve that year or something and and uh, we lost twelve games in a row and I'm like I mean twelve games that season. I'm like, man, I haven't lost that many games and combined from little league to, to college. Right. And, and I do that one season. So that, that kinda threw me for a loop. Um and what I saw with Coach Capers was a guy that was so methodical about his approach. Yeah. Okay. It's like more like a scientist and everything had to be done at a certain time. Everything had to be done and, um, you know, at a certain way. And, and it was just like that. And his whole, his whole staff was like that. Vic, uh, Vangio uh, was, was, was the same way. He, he, he was more of a, he, he was kind of hot in the sense of, his next year, if we'd had a good year, he probably would have been a head coach candidate somewhere and gotcha. probably would have got his his opportunity. So so he was more approaching it from a head coach's standpoint as a defensive coordinator at the time. Um, so you, you kind of saw that. You know, me looking back at what was going on in different dynamics, I, I, I just think that you had a lot of stuff. Um, when you're so successful that early, you probably start believing into the – Press clippings, right? Sure, sure. So, so you don't grow to the next year. You probably stay the same. You probably say, okay, if this got us to the NFC Championship, well, let's just get more people that can help us get over the hump, but let's keep it the same. And that's not just – that's just not how football works. Every year is different. Every dynamic is different. So you have to start over. I don't think we started over. I think we, we thought we could just roll in there and just take off from where we – started the year before and and uh and that hurt us that hurt us a lot yeah you know maybe as a team that there wasn't a lot of success in those first couple of years but from a personal standpoint you you took over a starting mm-hmm. role six games into that rookie year and so you know schematically what did you like about that defense that you thought suited your skill set well enough to where you could get on the field so quickly of course we was a 3-4 defense so it was the first time i've ever been in a 3-4 um, situation. So it was a lot of learning that I had to do. Um, it was a lot of learning that I had to do from, from the, you know, safety position, stand in the middle of the field. You can't be coming up that because in college, a, a quarterback can't throw that far. So, so you can come up early. Right. right. And in that field, your butt come up out of that middle of the field. Um, it's going to be a bad day. For yeah. You. It's seven, and, it's seven uh, points the and, other way. That's, that's right. So I had to learn how to be patient. Um, but man, listen, um, it was a complicated defense because the strong safety, which was, which is what I was playing at the time was so tied into everything that was going on. It was a critical piece. And that person had to be very smart and football wise to understand what was going on. Cause he was tied to the middle linebacker who then was tied to the front. And, um, and so you think about a young rookie coming in six you know, six game and, and your butt is in one of the m- most important positions in a three, four defense with a strong safety. Right. And you got to make all these different calls. So, uh, I, I was in, I was, uh, you know, kind of taken back. I remember when they brought me in, Eric Davis was a close friend of mine who, you know, really raised me up in, in the league. And so he kind of took me under his wings and he was teaching me everything. And, um, and so I remember when, uh, we we came in and and um, him and the DB coach was in the back room. And so I thought I did something wrong. They was like, look, let let, let, let us talk to you. And so they pulled me in the back room. First time this happened, they looking at me kind of like, 
you know, a funeral just, just happened and I'm looking at them like, okay, where are they going with this? And, and eventually um, the DB coach said, uh, are you ready? I said, am I ready for what? <laughs> He's <laughs> like, are you ready to be a starter? And I'm like, of course I'm ready, right? So, right. Um, and then ED was there really to be some support in case, I guess, in case I flipped out and, and ran out the room and said, no, I'm not ready. He was going to be there for the support <laughs> there. <laughs> Get me ready. And um, But at the end of the day, um, man, I, I think that first game, we were playing Minnesota, and I probably had about 10, 11 tackles, and I was all over the field. And Man, that's what I've been waiting on. I right. love football. I love playing. And I, I never feel like I, I should be a guy that's sitting down on the bench looking from the sideline. I've never been that, and I never want to be that. And um, so when they presented the opportunity, I promised them I, you guys would never have to look back because, you know, I would be a starter for the rest of my career. Yeah, and, and if that represented sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, if that represented sort of chapter one of your career in the NFL, when I was doing my research on chapter two, which I guess I would call the, the George Seifert era, I mean, you talk about a, a three-year stretch that, that must have been just bizarre, frankly, for, for everybody that was part of the organization because you have Seifert coming in with five Super Bowl rings, three as an assistant coach for the 49ers with Bill Walsh, and then two as the head coach of the 49ers by himself. So if a franchise hires a guy who has five Super Bowls, I mean, that's going to generate a lot of attention right there just because of the profile of the individual. Then in the midst of, of all of that, there's the issue with Ray Carruth, and, and he's arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. And then at the end of the George Seifert era, you guys go 1-15, and 15 and there's a 15-game losing streak. I mean, maybe from the outside looking in, it seemed more chaotic than it was because it was moving slower for you day by day. But was it as strange as it seemed to me when I was doing my research the other day? <laughs> Michael, listen, man, it, it was very strange. Um, it, it, it's a, it, <laughs> I can't believe that I lived through that, to be honest with you. Like, it, I mean... It was just so weird to see everything that was going on um, during that time. Because, you know, even though that chapter one that you talked about, that last year with uh, with Dom was a bad last year. You know, Kevin Green was right. choking co um, coordinators and everything. And, and I'm sitting right next to him when that happened. And so I'm like, man, this is how they do it in the National Football League. You know, and so all these things were going on. Then we get George Seifert in. And to your point, I mean, he, he's a champion. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited to meet him. I was so excited for him to get up in front of us and tell us how we were going to win a championship and, and, and everything. And then I quickly, um, you know, realized from, from his standpoint that it wasn't him. Right? It was, even though he won two Super Bowls after Bill Walsh, it wasn't his program. And so he needed a program that was already built. And then he could, you know, navigate. And I remember him coming to, to us and he was saying, you know, you know, the Ronnie Lots of the world and Joe Montana's and I'm like, Coach, we we not that. Like you gotta teach us to be that. We're not just gonna roll roll in here and be that. <laughs> you know, and and so I thought that was the missing element. He didn't know how to develop in people to become Got it. a Ronnie Lott, so on and so forth, right? And, and, and that's what happened in that situation. So that was weird, 
So that was the first time I ever seen that. And um, and then, of course, Ray Carew. I mean, we came in together. He was the first-round pick. I was sure. second-round pick. And, and um, so we grew up together. And um, I, I remember that whole year. It was just weird for him. He had got hurt. They wanted him to do punt return. He didn't want to do punt return. I remember in practice, man, they kicking the ball to him. He just automatically dropping the ball on purpose. And he's like, I'm not doing this. So I don't care how many balls y'all kick to me. I'm not doing it. <laughs> and, and again, I'm sitting here like, man, this is crazy. Why would you not want to get on the football team uh, field and help us any way you can? But right. he just he had no desire to do that. And then he hurt his foot, and then he was injured. And and I think that's what really got him is a is the fact that this guy wasn't part of the football team. And they was questioning, of course, a new coach that comes in, he's going to question everybody who was before him. Are you good enough to be on my team? I'm sure George Seifert was looking for the next Jerry Rice, right. and he's thinking that he's that. And I'm like, so the pressure that was put on that kid to be number 80, man, that's, that's tough. And, and, and I just think he went through a lot. And then all of a sudden, um, right before that, we had somebody hang themselves right by our practice field. Wow. Okay, so we got a practice field, and then you kind of walk over a bridge, and then you walk to the stadium, okay? And right there at the bridge, we coming out of practice, and they like, our police and everybody is around, and, and they got this guy in a plastic bag hanging off the bridge. Holy and, crap. And we just like, we like, what? <laughs> you know, what is going on around here? And then, of course, Ray Carew thing happened. Um, so it was a lot that was going on, man. We we just really thought we was, you know, like some, we was cursed with something. Sure. <laughs> um, I think that was the biggest thing that went on during that time. And, and then I remember, man, we we um, playing, you know, we were 1-15, and, and guys didn't want to play. Yeah. And, and that was the first time that, that I've been on a football field that I felt like, my teammates didn't want to play. And that was weird to me. You know, that, that, that probably was the weirdest thing that was going on during that time, too. And um, and so, you know, you lose 15 games in a row for a reason. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, that was that was a tough – I think that was the toughest moment of my career. Right. Losing 15 games in a row and um, being the first team to do that. And this is um, this is during a point in your in your career as well where you're starting this unbelievable stretch of durability, where you know yeah. for a guy that was you know what was your playing weight about 190 pounds somewhere in there maybe that's right yeah yeah, yeah. so at 190 yeah. pounds from 1999 to 2006 you played and started 126 out of 128 games including 94 consecutive starts there was at least one year where you had over 100 tackles and so how did you do it physically because i mean you hear all the time guys say that some of these tackles feel like car crashes and so at 190 pounds how did you survive 100 plus car crashes season after season after season without missing a game you know what um i think when god um, built me, he built me to be able to sustain football. <laughs> like, like I loved it from a little kid. I mean, I was that same way the whole time. I, I've never changed when it came to football. So um, I didn't know anything else. You know, I, I didn't know um, nothing but get on the field, play hard, try to win the game, 
try to win a championship. And that's all I ever did. So, it, it, you know, I, I didn't have some special, um, you know, workout plan. I didn't have no special uh, recovery plan, you know, like these guys have today. Right. I, I didn't do none of that, man. It, it, to me, it was it was all, you know, the good Lord just really just sustaining me. Um, now, I was always a guy, I, you know, I didn't go out. Sure. I didn't do no drinking. I, I didn't do any smoking or any of that stuff. And, and so I was always home and in the bed at, at right time. So if anything, it was just rest. Right. I, was, I knew that I needed to rest um, when it was time to rest. So I would go to sleep at, at a, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock every night and wake up and, 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 and ready to do it again. So they used to call me old man even when I was a young kid. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> And um, and so, but I was just focused on on football, man. It, it, nothing else really mattered to me. Well, could you, and, um, so could you envision ahead. making that number of consecutive starts and being as durable as you were, given that right before the start of that durability stretch, you have this unbelievably brutal staph infection where you're in a hospital for you know a, a, almost a week and and you lose ten or fifteen pounds. This is your second year in the league in '98 and. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was reading this article yesterday, looking at some of the quotes that you gave at the time or some of the descriptions saying that you couldn't eat solid food for almost 10 days wow. and you needed a wheelchair to move around the hospital and you were having these bizarre, almost psychedelic kind of dreams and things while you were in the yeah. hospital with the pain medication. And so, you know, first of all, to be a young guy two years into the league and then to know that, you know, with hindsight now, you know that after this experience, wow. you basically didn't miss a game the rest of your career. Was it was it strange? to think that this one thing, this staph infection in your knee, kind of just, you know, I mean, did it feel like it threatened your career at the time? Oh, listen, I, um, well, let me say, going through it, so when it happens, you don't know what, what's going on. Right. And so they rush you to the hospital, they get you in there, and, and they rush you into surgery and all that type of stuff. Um, and then you land in bed, you know, for the, for the two weeks that you in the hospital, then they put a you know, tube in your chest, you know, for the next six weeks and, 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 and all that stuff. And, and, and I remember going through that. I'm not thinking about my future. Got really. That. I'm just kind of thinking in the moment of, okay, hey, what is this and how do I deal with this? Right. Uh, so my mind always go to where we at and what's the enemy of the moment. And, um, and so as I was going through this and, and then I started to come back out of it and, I could walk and all that type of stuff. Um, I was not ready to, to, to play. Okay. okay. We was playing the New York Jets, And I was, of course, um, you know, not playing um, that game. And I remember um, Mr. Richardson coming up to me and he said to me, he said, your little butt better get your butt back on this football field because, <laughs> you know, this new coach that I'm going to bring in, is, is he need to see you, Right. So this, the owner saying this to me, so I'm already, I'm okay, I get fired up, right? At this point, I'm like, okay, I, I got to get back. So I called my doctors back in Nebraska, right, and to ask them what they think. And, and all of them were saying, man, you can't play. There's no way you can play on this staff <laughs> infection, man. You're crazy. Don't do that. Um, and so um, I was like, okay, I heard them out. I got their information. Remember wh where I started this at is, Get information before you yep. start freaking out about what's going on, right? Yep. So, so I did that around staff infection and what's the 
the probability of me coming back and all that. But at the end of the day, if the owner come up to you and tell you how important it is for your butt to get back <laughs> on the football field, trust me, number 30 is going to get back on the football field. Right. So um, I remember coming back in the last four games. I couldn't. Man, my knee was tore up. Right, I was doing leg presses on the sideline in between series Jeez. to strengthen it up so I can play. And um, and you, I remember I got playing, my first interception. Do you think playing that soon shortened your career in the long run? Well, no, I, I don't. Let me say this because when when I came back it, and 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 literally it was just all for will and strength of the mind, right? And God just saying, okay. Uh, we're going to get you through. Okay. So after that is when I started the question, and I'm talking about the, the, the next off season, I couldn't run. I couldn't stop. Jeez. So at that point I'm thinking, okay, these four games, dumb, dumb, you didn't win play. Now your <laughs> butt is not going to be able to play for the rest of your career. Right. So I'm thinking it's over at that time. Nobody knows this. I don't tell anybody that I can't run. I can't stop. It was so painful. Okay, so during that whole summer, um, I couldn't work out, you know, and and I got the training camp. And I I remember this as vivid as it was yesterday. I said, I said, Lord, look, I'm right at training camp. (laughs) Nobody's seen me at this point. I said, Lord, if you want me to play this game of football, you got to heal my knee. Okay, I remember waking up the next day and gone. Pain gone. And it it left, and it did not come back until I retired. Remember, I retired, and I said, you know what? My knees are just right. hurting. I knew what it was, right? So uh, I used all the training camp to mentally release football. <laughs> so so I knew that the end was here. And, and, and I, I, I remember, like it was yesterday, that, you know, I felt like God told me at that time of, you know, when it's time for you to walk away, this pain will come back. Got okay? it. And and that's what happened, man. So so I once he healed it, I never looked back at how many years I'm gonna play. I knew I was good to whenever it comes back. Whenever right. it comes back, I knew <laughs> I got to leave. Right. <laughs> so I'm curious if all of that, you know, that we just discussed from you know the beginning yeah. of the Dom Capers era to the staff infection to George Seifert, if that's all kind of chapter one and chapter two of of your career, was there sort of a um, a cleansing or rejuvenating feeling in 2002 when when John Fox comes in and you guys are able to select some guy named Julius Peppers? Was that like <laughs> did that like re-energize the franchise a little bit after that one in fifteen debacle? Hey, listen, let me say something about John Fox, man. He was the coach that I was looking for, or he was the coach that I thought I was going to get from the beginning in, in NFL football. I mean, this guy had the energy. He had the charisma. He understood people. He understood how to move people. He, he was a, a leader, um, and he had a vision and a passion that was nobody going to stop him, right? And he came in that room, the first meeting, and he said to us, you know what, guys? Everybody ain't going to be here, but the people who stay and the people who trust me, we will be champions. Right? And, and I felt that. I understood what he was saying and, and the energy that he said it with. So um, at that point, I knew we had our guy. Okay? Now, training camp, 
was the hardest training camp known to man. We were hitting every single day, right? I mean, he built us to be tough because he said, I want smart and tough guys. We had the ability. We had the athlete. And, of course, to your point, we get a young kid and Julius Peppers, who the greatest athlete I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Yep. Um, guys six, 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 seven, and can move the way he can move, run a four or five. He's like a defensive back and just agile. Man, I'm like, who is this guy, right? And and now he's on our defense? Man, please, let's plug him in and, and, and let's go. Uh, I remember we got Steve Smith, man. I mean, he was a different dude, even though he was a third-round pick. Yep. We knew he was different. We was like, that guy different. He fits into what we're doing. Then Chris Jenkins and 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 you know you start to Stephen Davis in free agency. Stephen Davis in free agency, man, and and you start to see the vision of what Coach Fox was talking about. He went and got guys that fit what he was saying, smart and tough football players, and and you know we was the toughest group around, man, and. And and so when you start building that, you get excited. You get, of course, you get rejuvenated because you know that this is what it's about. And I'm in my prime, and right. so it, it was a it was a perfect fit um, to that. And, and man, we was we was excited to go through training camp the way we did. And I remember we jumped out, had a you know couple great games early on, and then we went through this losing streak in the middle, and then we won like three out of the last five or something like that. And, and then all of a sudden, we was like, oh, yeah, we're here. So that next year to go win the Super I mean, go to the Super Bowl, man, we was already ready. We, we, we knew um, we was that type of football team at that time. Yeah, that 2003 team ends up reaching the Super Bowl, like you said, and, and participates in, in what a lot of people consider is one of the best, if not the best, you know, Super Bowls ever in terms of entertainment value. And, you know, looking at that team, what you guys had on offense was Jake DeLome at quarterback, Stephen Davis giving you 1,400 yards at running back, Steve Smith 1,100 yards, Moosin Muhammad 800 yards, and then on defense, your defensive line, Julius Peppers, Chris Jenkins, who was a pro bowler and a first-team All-Pro that year. Mike Rucker, your buddy, a pro bowler. The linebackers, Will Witherspoon and Dan Morgan, were solid. And then in the back end, you and Deion Grant, the two of you guys combined for six interceptions, 20 PBUs, and you yourself take two of your interceptions back for touchdowns. And so as that season goes along, you know, it wasn't like a 14-2 and or a 13-3 and totally dominant year. It was 11-5. and But did you guys know as the year was going that this team had the ability to reach the, the pinnacle, to reach the Super Bowl? When we beat um, the Indianapolis Colts, and I believe we went 5-0 and at the time, when we beat those guys at home at their place, and um, you know Peyton Manning, Manning Mar, you know Marvin Harrison, and and and, and all them guys, and, and and we shut that offense down, and we beat them. We was like, yeah, we we got a chance, guys, to to go to the Super Bowl. At that point, we had the confidence to know that we had it, and um, then we kind of went through a losing streak. I think we lost like like three games. Yeah, three Michael in a row. Vick came back right and, and kind of sparked that three-game losing streak type thing. And and, um, and and I remember us going to Arizona. And all we had to do was just win one game, and we would have won the conference. And, and um, you know, we we squeaked it out against a bad Arizona team. They they was not good. And, and, and once we squeaked it out and we got the, 
you know, the burden of winning the division off of um off of us. I think that then released us again to have the playoff run that we had to get to the Super Bowl. So um, it it was kind of like a, a a life of three three lives that kind of went through that right through that season where that first part of it was like, yeah, we we here, we good enough, and then then it's like, okay, are we good enough? And then okay, we good, we want it. Now let's focus on getting all the way and. And from that point, man, it was it was really easy playing football at that time. It wasn't nobody was, you know, was tight. Nobody was trying to force anything. I was just playing football, man, and and I think that's what propelled us to go to the Super Bowl that year. Yeah, I mean that that playoff run when I was researching it was was really interesting. You know, the first game, the wild card round, wasn't that exciting. You guys dominated Dallas twenty nine to ten. But then in the divisional game, you have a double overtime win over the Rams, which, you know, I don't know how many double overtime games there have been in the NFL, but it can't be many. Um, it's the fifth longest game in NFL history. Um, there's an onside kick that's recovered. There's both teams missing a field goal in overtime. Uh, Ricky Manning has an interception, and he goes on to have one of the more remarkable playoff stretches that I can remember with four interceptions in the span of two games. Um, and then, you know, the, the game ends with, with Jake Loam to Steve Smith, a 69-yard touchdown pass on the first play of double overtime. So after all of that game play of six quarters, or I guess it was five quarters and a little bit more, to to see it end the way that it did in kind of a you know a walk-off home run style fashion. Uh, I mean, what were you doing on the sideline when you saw Steve Smith kind of break through their secondary up the left sideline and just take it to the house? Man, um, it, it's like that moment was like when we won the. The, the second national championship, right? So that that moment matched that, and and man, we just all just in disbelief that this just happened. So if, if you you're just kind of numb, right? So most people would think you'd be like ah, all this energy, but it, it's just really just a numb feeling. Like wow, we just won this game like that. That's some crazy stuff, right? And um, and we was tired too, so. So maybe that's part of the deal too. Is we just all so tired of, of the situation where we just like, hey, great job. Let's get let's get on this plane and get back and get ready for the next one, man. And uh, so that that's really how that moment was. Yeah, the next one was a, another convincing win, fourteen to three over the Eagles, where you guys hold Donovan McNabb to a hundred yards passing and three interceptions before he leaves the game with a separated rib. And then Coy Detmer comes in and, and you hold him to 88 yards and you get the one interception on him late in the game there. Um, and, and you also have, uh, or excuse me, you, you force the interception with the hit on James Thrash. And, uh, and, and that's the game where Ricky Manning has three interceptions by himself. And so, you know, to, to get to that point and to win the NFC title game and to know you're going against New England, this team that was starting to put together a dynasty, um, how are you feeling going into the Super Bowl? You said you're not a guy that's ever nervous. Was was the two-week wait between the NFC title game and the Super Bowl just agony for you because you just wanted the whistle to blow so you could get out there? You know what? It, it really wasn't because it was our first time doing it. Gotcha. Right? So we didn't know what to expect. So I remember you know, Coach Fox um, bringing um, different people that went to the Super Bowl before that he knew um, and of course, he did it with the Giants. They, they they didn't win, but but of course he he, he was able to, to do that. He and I remember him saying, "Guys, y'all don't want to lose this game because 
what they do to losers is not very nice, right? And um, so we would, that first week was all about preparing us for, for what to expect. And so, again, to me, that's gathering information. So I'm, I'm locked into, okay, wh- you know, what, what's going to happen, you know, the tickets, and then, you know, what, how's it going to be? And so you listen to all these guys. You're talking to different people that you know that have been to the Super Bowl and they, what they did. And so that whole first week went by so fast because you were just so into doing administrative um, information gathering stuff during that time, okay? So now when we get on the plane and we, we headed um, over to where we were going to practice and, and, and all that type of stuff in Houston, um, I remember staying way off the beaten path and, sure. and some type of all community. <laughs> and uh, we was we were gonna be locked down for, for for this whole week and 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 then the media stuff. And so I'm on all these different shows. So at the at at the time it was like the first time that the Carolina Panthers was on the national stage where national media wanted us. Okay, so um, you know, I'm on ESPN and I'm I'm on the stage live on ESPN and, and I'm sitting here just just in amaze that, that I'm part of this, right? And I and I think that was the whole thing that made the second week go fast is the fact that the media and all the different things that was going on there. Um so I, I was again in the moment <laughs> in the moment of the first week, in the moment of um gathering up or leading up to to the championship game and, and um, you know, so it, it wasn't anything that we were nervous or we was, you know, thinking about it. Uh, and when we got out there, we was ready to play. I you know, mean, we was ready to play. You know, one of my colleagues in Green Bay, Bob McGinn, wrote a book called The Ultimate Super Bowl Book, where there's one chapter about each of the Super Bowls. And so I went back and I read that to try and, you know, refresh my memory of what exactly went on in this game up until, you know, the the famous kick by Vinatieri that everybody remembers. And the first thing that jumped out to me in in Bob's recap and summary of the game was that it was 59 degrees in Houston in January or February, whichever day the game was held and that they had the roof closed. And so he spends a lot of time talking about just how brutal the conditions were by the end of the game. And there's a quote from <laughs> Teddy Bruschi in there saying that everybody is just exhausted and the defenses are, are just kind of wheezing their way to the finish line. And, and I'm curious, did, did you remember it being, or did it feel at the time that it was just like really stuffy and gross in there? And did that matter? Yes, it, it did matter. And the humidity that was happening during that time, which, I mean, think about it. The kick that John Casey um, kicked out of bounds was because of that. He slipped right before he was about to kick it. He slips, and then the ball goes out of bounds, which puts them on the 40-yard line to, you know, give them the opportunity to get that field goal. So um, it, it was it was very critical to the outcome of the game. Uh, I, I slipped um, in the third beginning of the third quarter, I slip on the grass as I'm hitting um, their tight end as he caught the ball down the middle of the field, and I'm coming across the field, and I hit him um, around about the 10-yard line, and um, my foot, I broke my foot right there. And I remember coming to the sideline like, hey, man, I broke my foot. He's like, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I did. Don't take my shoe off. I just want you to tie it up real tight and tape it right now. So I'm not coming out of this game. Okay, so so yeah, man, that was that that whole deal. Um, you you had a lot of different injuries that started to happen because of that. 
and you know Rodney Harrison on the other side broke his broke his arm and yep. and these things I believe is the conditions of what happened in that stadium with with them doing what they did. You know that fourth quarter, the two teams score on six of the seven possessions, and it's just back and forth and back and forth. As as the clock is starting to wind down, and you see that it's you know five minutes left, three minutes left, two minutes left. Um, did it have the feeling at the time that whichever team ended up with the ball last was going to win? That was just kind of how the game was going. Well, you know what 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 I thought was we were going to win the game. I mean, when, when you know, we hit Moose and he 80-something uh, yards down the sideline, I was like, man, we're going to win this game. And this is this is meant for us to win. And we tie the game up, and, and and I'm like, okay, look, whatever the time was left in the game, we're going to stop and we're going to go into overtime. We're going to get the ball further and we're going to score and win, right? So this is what I'm saying in my head. I'm sure they're saying it over there right. on, on their sideline. So I did not think – that um, they was going to score on that last drive, you know. I I, I just really didn't think so. I, I thought they would, uh, you know, try to play it conservative a little bit and and um, you know run the clock out. We go in overtime and, and we win it there. But um, I, I did not think the last person. Well. The last person who had it in regulation was going to win the game. I didn't think that. Gotcha, gotcha. Did you? Are you familiar with, or did you hear the story about what was going on with uh, New England's long snapper that day? Yeah. Well, we didn't know that. We we didn't heard it afterwards, but um, we we didn't know that at the time. I, I don't think we actually talked about their long snapper. Uh, during that during that time. Okay, so th- so I'll set the stage a little bit. So they had gone through two long snappers during the season, and this was their third choice um, of guy that that Belichick, Bill Belichick, had brought in. And on the afternoon of the game, uh, at the team meal, he cuts his hand on a knife somehow, and they're trying to wrap it and get him ready to snap a football, which obviously <laughs> you need two healthy hands to do. And so this this book that I mentioned with uh, you know written by Bob McGinn, he talked to Belichick years later about it, and Belichick gave this unbelievable quote. Uh, Belichick says. Um, Kinchin, though, was the long snapper. His last name was Kinchin. He says, Kinchin comes over to me and says, look, I'm not sure if I can go. And then Bill says, I told him, you better because I'm going to fucking kill you. To me, at that point, you're playing. It's a finger. Stitch it up. Put a tourniquet on it. Whatever you want to do. It's a Super Bowl. And so going into this last second kick, you have um, you have Adam Vinatieri lining up for a 41-yard field goal. And, of course, the Patriots' sideline is freaking out because they know that their long snapper's hand is compromised. They know that your special teams unit had been unbelievable that year and had some really good interior pushes with guys. And so they're just thinking, how in the world could it come down to this? And then, you know, the snap ends up being okay and Vinatieri kicks it and and you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what you talked about how how elated and how um, just how gratifying it was to win a national title at Nebraska that second time when you got to actually play in the game. H- how would you describe the feeling of seeing that ball go through the uprights? Was it like numbing almost? Uh, it, was, it, it was numbing. It was disbelief. It was the worst. It was the worst feeling um, that you have. Um, in a football game, man. It, it, and it, it, you just you just sitting there like it, it. so everything in that season go through your mind. 
every play that you played in that game go through your mind all at that time. And, and, and you just sitting there thinking like, wow, what could I have done? And, and, and you just immediately go to um, things that you could have done differently to win this football game. And, um, and so you kind of bounce back from, <clears throat> from that to I can't believe it. That too, I can't believe it. <laughs> and um, so it was it was a crazy moment. And then, you know, everything that Coach Fox said they're going to do to you if you lose the, the Super Bowl, they did it. I mean, they roped everything off and they kicked us off the field, man. It was like escorted all of us off the field. you no longer part of the Super Bowl. You lost. You, you got lost. Jeez. You got to go. <laughs> and um, that was the other feeling of it, man. Like you just get kicked off the field because of that. And um, so it it was a moment that I will never forget. You guys had one other opportunity where you made a real deep run in the playoffs, and that was 2005 going to the NFC title game again. So this ends up being your second to last year in the league. And I'm curious, did you did you feel as good about that 2005 team as you did about the 03 squad, or was it or was it not quite um, as as strong as as what you guys had when you lost to the Patriots? I felt that we were good enough early on in that in that season. Okay. But as we got into the playoffs and we started having you know injuries, um, that 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 kind of threw us for. Um, um, if we was healthy, I feel like we we get back to the Super Bowl um, because we wasn't he- healthy and, and Deshaun Foster had got hurt. Everybody getting hurt. Stephen Davis. Everybody hurt at that time. You got Nick Goins as your third option at running back. And he gets knocked out, I believe, in, in that game. So I think we run the ball with Brad over at that time. So it was it was a it was a tough situation. But Seattle was really good. Yeah. That place is the loudest place I ever heard in my life. Yep. And um so when they talk about that, that's real. <laughs> and and you know, that 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 offense with the stretch game and the play uh, play action yeah, pass. Yeah, Sean, off of that. Sean Alexander and, was a monster that day. Oh my goodness, he was a monster, man! Like I'm hitting this dude, and it's like he's not even feeling it, right? I'm like, man, who is this guy? You know, because you know he wasn't a a guy that was gonna you know put a move on you. He wasn't like right. a uh, you know run you over type guy. He was just man, he just ran the stretch very well, um, and he was heavy and um, and. You know, I think their tight end had a big game um, against us because of the play-action passes down the middle. Um, and, and so, man, they had a great game plan. And, and when I look at that, I said, man, they beat us. So I didn't – I wasn't as deflated right. in that game than I was, you know, the Super Bowl because I knew this team was better than us that night, and they beat us. And I'm always good. If you just beat me, I'm good with that. You right. Know? Um, and we walked out the field like, okay, they were better than us tonight. We'll come back, <laughs> and, that's, and that's how we left it. Yeah, and then, you know, within uh, the next two years, you go to training camp in 07, and that's when your knee pain starts to come back, and, and you yeah. call it quits. And, and when you retire, you're the franchise leader in tackles, starts, and consecutive starts. And one of the coolest things that I noticed when I was putting together some research for this is that almost every article I read about your retirement or the end of your career or, you know, sort of anything about your legacy in Carolina, there was always a line in every article that said something to the effect of, 
he's one of the most beloved players in franchise history or he's one of the fan favorites or you know whatever you know whatever you know uh, context they wanted to use for to get that thought yeah. across and so for a guy who you know gave it everything you had and and was on the field every sunday regardless of whether you were bruised or bumped or injured or whatever um did did it feel nice to to sort of have that kind of love and 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 reciprocal affection from from a fan base like were you aware that you were a favorite by the time you you your career wound up yeah i mean it you know it it started really my second year in the league with 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 charlotte um because you know i'm I'm the type of guy that i'm gonna get involved in what where i'm at and and the community and 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 so i was always in the community doing something right and um and so I grew my you know, everybody got to know me. <laughs> and and so throughout that whole time, um, yes, I, I knew how the city and the Carolinas, North and South Carolina and this area in the southeast felt about me. And um and so when when I retired and, you know, I mean, when the owner gets up there and, and, and speak about you and, and, and start crying because that's what we did when I told him I would retire because he was like a, he was like a father figure to me. Sure. Um, he taught me a lot about the business of football. And, um, and, and so it, it, it was, it was very touching because you kind of like having a funeral and you're alive. Right. So, yeah. so you get to really hear what people felt about, you as a person and, and, and the impact that you had on them and, and their kids. Cause you know, I was all about teaching young people, um, how to be great. Um, that's always been my deal. Um, even as a leader on the team and, um, leader at Nebraska on the football teams and in high school, and it's always been, how can I help somebody else unlock their greatness? And, um, so it, it, it was definitely touching. So the reason I, I decided to go chronologically through, you know, sort of your career with this particular podcast is I wanted to kind of end with something that is now tying back into the present with all of the the social movements and, and things going on to try and achieve the, the much needed racial equality. And that is in 2009, a couple years after you retire, you think <laughs> about considering running for the, the House of Representatives in 2010. Yeah. Um, Republican candidate you were going to be and you were going to take on the incumbent. Larry Kissel in the 8th Congressional District, which is kind of in that southern Piedmont area of, of Carolina. And you even took a visit to Washington, D.C. to kind of try and understand the, the political climate and see what was going on and everything. And so I, I'm curious, you know, first of all, what sort of um, inspired you to at least consider that in 2009? And now, if you were to move forward 11 years and see everything that's happening in our country and things, would you ever feel the itch again to try and get into politics? Mm, that's a that's a great question. Um, again, I'm 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 a leader. That's who I am. I've always been at, and um, I've always been someone who understands the climate of 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 um, the community. I've always understood people, how they think, how they come together, and um, and of course I just used it all the time in in sports all my life, and and so um, I always thought I was going to be a pastor when I was done playing. Okay. Um, that, that's where I was leading to go. And, um, but then as I got older into my life, um, I, I started looking at, well, I don't know about the church thing because 
I'm the type of person I want to grow you and move you to the next stage, right? Okay. I don't want you sitting in my seat or in my pew for 15 years and then the kids sit in there for the next 15 and that's it. <laughs> I said, no, that's, that's not what, what, what it's about with me. I want to grow people, move people so they get better. And sitting in my pew for 15 years is not it. You should be at my church for three years and you should be going to either go do it yourself or something else. Okay. And, um, and so it gets the organization and, and how the history and the traditions didn't fit with what I wanted to do. And so, you know, uh, Robin Hayes, he was the congressman before Larry Kissel uh, beat him out. And, uh, and so he came to me, you know, out of nowhere. I remember holding a function at my house for him um, one of the times that he was running, and we got a chance to meet at that time. So, you know, I'm assuming he watching me throughout my football career right. and uh, watching what I stand for and all that, and he came to me and, you know, came to a meeting, and we sat down, and he said, I think you should run for Congress. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I never thought about that. And, he, <laughs> you know, of course <laughs> – he started talking to me more about what it's about, and, and he said, you know what, I, I want to take you to Washington for a weekend, and I want you to um, see how important this is and, and how important you are to what we want to do. And I'm like, okay, wow. You know, it was an honor. Think about sure. it. An honor of Congressman coming to you out of nowhere. You, it's not like y'all were best friends, you know. And, um, and then he flew me down on his plane. He, he was a pilot. I, I remember us going to the plane, right? It was just us two. And we got on the plane. And I said, uh, what, what the pilot is? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm the pilot. Oh, I said, my what? gosh. <laughs> so, so we got in it, and, and I sat up front with him. And so that whole experience of how to learn how to fly a plane and, and, and all of that, which is unbelievable. So we go to, we fly to D.C., we get off. They, you know, everything is like, Unbelievable, man. They they got secret service people. They pick us up. They take us to the deal, and everything is locked down. It's a whole new world I walk into, and I'm like, wow. Okay, so and and right at the front, you 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 feel the power of the United States of America, right? I'm like, okay, this is different. I've never felt this before, and um, and so I met with everybody. Everybody, and then I did. A, they had me speak. It was like the Republican breakfast, and um, I remember us walking in, and all the Republicans that that's on um, that's in Washington D.C. is at this breakfast, and and um, he, he tapped me on the leg and said, "Mike, I want you to say a couple words to these people." Right? Oh wow! Uh, right, and I'm like, okay, I'm okay. That's putting people on the spot, and um, and I remember getting up. And all I did was talk about my my journey, you know, my journey as a as a black man in America, and um, the ability that America affords people, you know, good or bad, of all the different things that have happened. Um, if I'm not here, you know, do I have the opportunities to be who I am today without America, right? And uh, so that that's basically the gist of it, and and they. You know, all get up clapping and and give me a standing ovation. I'm like, what? <laughs> and um, and then the last person that I met with was uh, John Boehner, the Speaker of the House. 
Sure. And uh, I remember going to his office. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, I know enough about politics at this time who this guy is. Right. And and we sitting here in the office and we talking and and he's telling me the importance of of um, me being part of this and, and uh, that that he wanted me to join the team. So again, you start thinking about team, you start thinking about America, you start thinking about okay, the things that we need and and all that, and and um, you know, the the thing that made me not do it was the time that I was going to have to be there. Right. Okay. And and then you have to divide your time from home and and because in football you you at home every day. Right. And you had okay, young you had young kids at the time too. Well, I got some young kids and. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's really what made me say no. Um, other than that, trust me, man, I, I was, I was ready to go. I was ready to get in and, and, uh, and go in full force. And, and, but it, it was just a great honor. I, I thought to, to really be taken down there for three days and be winding on to be part of the team. Sure. That was, that was uh, some great recruiting that they did. So we'll, we'll end it on this then. Would you ever be tempted again, you know, maybe once your kids go to college or they're out of the house and things, and, and I don't know where your coaching career would be at that point. Maybe you like that right. that path more. But, you know, given the, the climate and all of the, the, the yeah. needed changes that, that have yeah. to happen for the African-American community to receive right. some of the, the treatment that they undoubtedly deserve, um, does that yeah. scratch the itch at all for you? Are you tempted at all? Well, let, let me say this. I, I, I really feel like coaching at this time is giving me the opportunity to help uh, these young men um, get and understand and thrive in the system that we're in today. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, and so, you know, after coaching, you know, may, maybe uh, I'm called back into politics because I really don't believe that things happen for accident, right? Everything no happened for a reason. And, and, and so maybe that introduction was something that later on I'm going to be ready to go and, and, and um, you know, get, get be a part of that, okay? So um, I never rule anything out, uh, but I do know that coaching right now gives me the opportunity to teach these young people everything that I've learned and everything that I've been able to um, experience in my life. Um, you know, I, I remember going to Cuba and, and um, I was there at the table with, you know, the highest level officials at Cuba. We was, we was doing it from, for, for a church um, deal that we was doing. And then they grabbed me and they take me off to, to, um, you know, to the national place where all the top officials are at, right? And, and, and they talking and they asking me questions about, you know, how do we build our um, athletic, you know, organization basically, right? And, and, and they showing me all these different things and, and, and it just blew my mind and I'm sitting here, you know, just unscripted <laughs> and, and I get an opportunity to be talking to these people at this type of level um, in Cuba. So I got a lot of different um, experiences that I've had in my 46 years of being on this earth that I give to these young men that really gets them and set them up for life um, and be the success that they need to be, that God has created them to be 
And that is really fulfilling to me. All right. So when you talk about, am I fired up about, uh, you know, where we at and the climate that we are in America and leadership, you know, that we need to rise up. Um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely fired up about that. Um, I, I think what I will say is, is that I think the, the climate needs to be more of we, we one team, one heartbeat. Right. And right now that's not the message from any side. <laughs> right. So it, it has to be one team, one heartbeat, no matter what, you know, it's, it's America first. And, um, and then we deal with everything else second. Um, but that's my mindset as a, you know, guy who plays sports his whole life and now coaching. It's, it's uh, everybody got to be on the same page and everybody got to be bought into what we're doing in order for this thing to work. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's awesome that you can kind of impart that message on, you know, anywhere from, you know, 70 to 100, you know, young men every year on the, on the teams that, that you're coaching. So that's, that's a really great way to kind of, um, you know, pay it forward and to share with them all of the, the, the knowledge and lessons that guided you throughout, throughout your career and your life. So I can totally understand why that would feel, you know, so fulfilling. And I just want to say thank you again for taking so much time to chat with me. I think I told you it was going to be about an hour, but here we are 90 minutes later. I, I guess that was a sign that it was a good conversation. So hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I appreciate you uh, taking some time to, to share everything from your career. It was, it was fascinating to learn from. And, you know, hopefully there's a season this fall. And, and if there is, I'll definitely be following along because I, uh, I like the things that you stand for and, and the way that you run your program sounds like the way that more programs should be run. So I appreciate you sharing a little bit of insight into your uh, your mindset there. And, and thanks again for carving out some time. Oh, absolutely. Thank you again, Michael, for having me on. And you do a great job, man. So keep, keep doing it. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths again. So there you have it, a conversation with former Carolina Panthers safety and current Campbell University head coach Mike Minter. I couldn't believe his story about the 2003 Super Bowl against the New England Patriots where he breaks his foot, comes over to the sideline, tells the trainers that he broke his foot, but refuses to come out of the game and says, hey, just tie my shoes a little bit tighter, tape me up, and I'm going to go back in there. You have to respect guys who have really long consecutive start streaks or just found ways to be extremely reliable and durable over the course of their NFL careers. And for a guy who's 190 pounds, known for being a big hitter, to make 94 consecutive starts and start 126 out of 128 games is really impressive because once you realize just how much these guys go through Monday through Friday in order simply to get ready to play on the weekend, you start to admire the guys who are always out there Sunday after Sunday no matter what. It was also pretty neat to hear him talk about a potential foray into politics, and I know right now he's coaching at Campbell University, doing a great job expanding the NFL profile of that institution, bringing more and more scouts to campus, trying to get some of his players to make that jump from the FCS to the NFL level, but in the back of my head, I just kind of think that at some point in time he'll find his way into local politics or local government. He seems too connected to the community, cares too much about you know everything going on in that Charlotte or greater Charlotte area, and I think at some point in time you know he'll get that itch and he'll he'll try and find a way to make a difference again through politics because he just seems like such a well-rounded and, and such a well-connected guy when it comes to knowing everybody in his area, knowing the community, knowing what everybody needs in his particular place of living. And I think when you have somebody like that, they ultimately get the itch and, and find a way to give back at some point in time through local government or local politics. We'll have to see how that shakes out. 
Don't forget to check out all the rest of the episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave us a review, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have something you'd like to share or maybe something you'd like to hear down the road. And don't forget to check out Manscaped.com, where you can get 20% off your order plus free shipping by using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. That's 20% off your entire order plus free shipping at Manscaped.com using the promo code COHEN, C-O-H-E-N. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm